Greetings. Uh, welcome everyone to another Wednesday evening with the Clear Mountain Monastery community. This evening, as you can see, we're blessed to be with Ajahn Sona uh, Lumpur. Thank you very much for, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, if you'll allow me, I'm just going to read a short bio um, for anyone who doesn't yet know you. Um, so Ajahn Sona, born in Canada in 1954, embarked on a spiritual journey after encountering Buddhist wisdom. Initially a classical guitarist, he became a lay hermit in British Columbia's Coast Mountain region. In 1989, he ordained as a Theravada monk under Bhante Gunaratana at the Bhavana Society in West Virginia. He further trained for over three years at monasteries in the Ajahn Chah tradition in Northeast Thailand, particularly at Wat Banana Chat. Returning to Canada in 1994, Ajahn Sona helped establish the original Birkin Forest Monastery near Pemberton, British Columbia, and through several subsequent incarnations has since guided the monastery, also known as Sitavana or Cool Forest Grove to its current secluded, fully off-grid location south of Kamloops, British Columbia. After over 30 years in robes, his closest disciples now refer to him as Lompor, Lompor meaning venerable father. So yeah, thank you for taking the time, Lompor. Uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who's joining? Yes. So we thought maybe to start off asking you some questions about uh, the interview that we did with Professor Solomon uh, last week, and yeah, heard that you had watched that, and just curious, what were your impressions? What were your takeaways from that? Well, I was very surprised and pleased to see that you had. Uh, managed to catch an interview with him. It's nice that he's open to that. Uh, he's used to being, uh, you know, doing university presentations. But this is the age of uh, interviews, the, the YouTube thing and the live streams. And so it's quite amazing who you get to see um, and who you can, everybody's got a little computer in their bedroom. See him giving a, the interview from his bedroom. <laughs> so it was nice to, to see him. At, uh, I have listened to a few of his talks at like conferences, university stuff online, not, not in person. And he's important. Uh, you, when you read any historical books about the, uh, the history of Buddhism in the Gandhara region um, and uh, histories of Buddhism in India as well in the early days. Always the footnotes always lead to uh, Richard Solomon, and so so he's done some great work. Now he's he's uh, retired, I believe, and so he's been at this for a long time, and uh, he is the one who. Uh, was one of the primary people dealing with these uh, very intriguing birch bark scrolls that had shown up and had hands-on uh, experience with them. I noticed that he was very disappointed in whoever it was that unrolled those things brutally and destructively without consideration. 
that's it's a good thing we didn't lose it it has very it has a parallel with the uh, dead sea scrolls uh some of these same things you i don't know whether you remember this uh the the scrolls were found by a shepherd uh boy in a vase and the the, the dead sea scrolls and so forth they and uh he brought them home and didn't understand the value of them. And his mother was starting fires with them because it's nice and dry, it's copperous, you know. <laughs> and then he brought one to a a, a dealer uh, in archaeology in, in uh, uh, Jerusalem, and uh, he, it turns out valuable. So he went back because they paid for them. So. I think he got about fifty dollars for the whole works, but it's yeah, yeah. kind of <laughs> earth-shattering kind of different depiction of Christianity. So some of these birch bark scrolls, you know. By the way, you didn't—he didn't really cover it, but we say they're from uh, Afghanistan area, you know, this and that. But really, nobody. Uh, th these are these showed up not at the archaeology sites they had been removed by who knows who and they were in containers and so one of the problems is that we don't know exactly where they came from probably it was either it was probably illegal uh to remove them but you know these countries like uh afghanistan and and egypt as well of course uh all these treasures are being removed from their spots and the government is half wants it to be removed and half wants to preserve it and there's a whole world of people who think you shouldn't remove these things from their from their resting place or that country <clears throat> however afghanistan is not a buddhist country and it would be a shame if they were if they were neglected or destroyed so they do of course the british museum where they ended up um is often blamed for uh having a whole bunch of stolen items from every place in the world <laughs> so but uh so that's the 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 history and it's unfortunate there's there's a lot of um places that are still to be explored uh, uh, and scrolls uh, more scrolls that could come up and could be from an earlier period one thing that as i was reading his his texts and uh what he mentioned again now he's very careful first of all uh professional historians usually not always because i read quite a few different uh, authors on this and some of them are quite careless uh, some of them have agendas um, uh, but he's a very careful uh, he's very careful and he proposes a theory that these birch bark scrolls were put in these casks it something as as more or less like uh monks uh, the the relics of monks are buried these are kind of substitute reliquaries for the as we as even is done now a little 
particles of bo bone and so forth that are left over from famous monks. They, he, he, he's not certain. He's very careful in his expression of this. He says that he thinks that they, they put these in as merit um, offerings. And, uh, or kind of uh, time capsules for the future as well. So that's another possible motive. As we do to this day, we send things into outer space. You know, we send off Bach and uh, Einstein's equations and Mozart into uh, outer space and for the alien appreciation that we're an advanced civilization. <laughs> so, who knows what the motive are, but it, from a Buddhist point of view, and you've been around this culture as well, it's not a surprise in any way to anybody who's been in the robes for a while. There's all kinds of burying relics and in, in tearing uh, elements of uh, monks. And even, uh, you know, if some famous monk has a, ha shaves his head on, on the full moon, uh, those hairs are collected and distributed, and they end up in in uh, sort of uh, clay discs and so forth. <laughs> so it's not surprising at all. the 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 motive for that is not surprising, but it's interesting that he he does propose a theory, and that theory has to be his. It's an original theory. That I mean, I don't think he's not really an archaeologist. He's He's a historian, and he's a specialist in in the language and the script and that kind of study. But of course, he would cooperate with uh, archaeology as well. And uh, but yeah, what I notice in in with him particularly is he's very uh, careful and cautious, not making any claims. Some of the things he said, I, I, I assume I, I say them rather casually, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm in a more easygoing, uh, speculate, speculative type of mood for these things because you have to be the to be precise and scientific is is difficult. And quite often these things, uh, archaeology <clears throat> that people spend thirty years at can be just wiped out in a second by a new technology like DNA. So a lot of the archaeology speculations about uh, the inhabitants of India and the antiquity of their, when they arrived or if they did not arrive and what they found at certain sites can be vanish in a, 30 years of archaeology uh, effort and theories can disappear in a in an eye a blink of an eye with dna and this dna is is changing our understanding of history um and probably will will play out even in these kind of discoveries and especially around in the gandharan um uh area yeah Longpore, if if we can then take a walk on the wild side and uh if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about um just giving people a, an overview of uh, maybe a brief one so we can put questions uh, around it as well. But what uh, is one of your hypotheses or your thinking about 
what the Gandharan scrolls could uh, suggest in terms of the writing down of the Pali canon or the canon rather. And um, I guess you could mix in Greek monks there as well, uh, if if you have the uh, the time and the bandwidth. But uh, um, I'd be curious about that summary and also what the implications of the canon being written down earlier would be, um, what that could lead to. That might be too many questions at once, but I thought I'd put it all out there. It's fine. And I noticed that you did ask him, uh, what was there anything jarring in there, startling? Was there a fifth noble truth? <laughs> he said, no, there was, there was a speculative question of if there was a fifth noble truth, but no, there was no fifth noble truth. So they, uh, some of these Gandharan, uh, scriptures have some very early things. And one of them is, uh, the rhinoceros sutta. And that's considered a very early, um, in the, it's in the Pali Canon as well. And so that's a very interesting thing to find in the, in the Gandharan, uh, rules. Um, what's interesting about that is some monks, I mean, these being translated, some, uh, Theravada monks, uh, really like the rhinoceros, uh, sutta because it is, uh, sort of an advocacy of living on your own rather than in a group. Uh, but what really comes up here is that the it's it seems that it was said it was said by a pacheka buddha it wasn't necessarily attributed to the buddha <laughs> so then this is something your your audience maybe not be familiar with this but there is a there's another kind of buddha and it's they're called a instead of a sama buddha they're called a pacheka buddha and they're pacheka means like silent or solitary as well and they they arise when they're they arise as a buddha almost uh the equivalent of a samasam buddha at a time when there is no teaching so they're self-enlightened but they don't have the charisma or some of the paramis the perfections of character to initiate a, a religious uh, movement and that's all that's missing there. So they live alone. Uh, but somehow it's it, this ideal came in there. I don't know. Of course, it's purely speculative. Uh, we don't have any historical knowledge of Pacheka Buddhas. Pacheka Buddha is a very interesting. Actually, I, I like the idea of a Pacheka Buddha. I was uh, I was on a um, a call with the other abbots of the branch monasteries today, and one of the things I said, we were chatting about uh, some of this, actually the Gandhara and stuff. And one of the things about Buddhism that I appreciate is that the Buddha hesitated to teach, you know, after attaining enlightenment, he thought, I don't know whether I want to bother with this, you know, teaching stuff. I'm pretty, I'm done. Um, which is, is a very relaxed attitude. It, we come from the Western culture where everything, you have to kind of be a missionary about everything, about health foods, and you gotta be a missionary about science, you gotta be a missionary about Christianity. You're kind of in a driven condition where you you have uh, you have social duties and activities. But this Pacheka Buddha is, seems to be content not to have 
taught. That's and that's found in this this early period as well in the Gandharan thing. <clears throat> Writing itself is the main thing. Uh, this changes everything. And the effect of also the effect of Greek thinking, the, the presence of of Greek attitudes on Buddhism. And this is where we see it. So when we look at the various schools of Buddhism, they quite often have a their collection of the suttas is very similar. And the collection of the Vinaya is very similar. Where the differences are is in the Abhidhamma. And so what you see is that they have they feel free to have a uh, a manifesto representing their school. And this is where you see the more of uh, the play of uh, more or less analytical types of thinking. And the analytical types of thinking uh, tend to be very similar to this this Greek idea. And, and if, if we didn't know that there were any Greeks around, we would think, wow, what a coincidence. <laughs> but it's not a coincidence. There were Greeks around and the Greeks were in the Romes. <laughs> And they were very interested in this. And they just naturally fell into this analytical mode. And the analytical mode they know is, is reductionism and atomism. So at, at, they reduce, they're reducing things down to their atomic parts. And they continue to push this. So this is also what uh, Thomas McEvely um, uh, is uh, certain of is that uh, th this the Mahay so this is influence on the Mahayana developments, the Mahayana developments, schools you know the, the Theravada schools and the Mahayana schools are competitive, um, particularly the Mahayana they're striking off in a different direction, and they are lo looking for some superiority there. <laughs> You can see it in the sutras. There's, there's a, they they're the ones that come up with the name for the early Buddhists, and the the of the Pali Canon is called Hinayana, the lesser vehicle. You know, they're they're the lesser vehicle. They also are the ones who came up with their own uh, title, the Mahayana, the grand the grand vehicle, the great vehicle. <laughs> this is self, this is self titled. You know, like. There's nothing of this in the in the Pali Canon. There is no lesser vehicle, and there is no Maya. <laughs> this is uh, their own label. So, part one way to win the the debate, and there are many debates. Remember that they they are debating, and it seemed to be a legitimate thing. And it, these debates could be very serious. You know, uh, if you lost a debate that that a king had sponsored. It's possible to lose your life. And so you really needed to prepare for these things. And some of, so this some of the pushing the kind of logical uh, reductionism that you find in the in the in the um, in the Abhidhamma, and it, it it grows into the some of the philosophies of emptiness, like this em emphasis on emptiness that every all the phenomena are are empty of substance. Where we start in the Pali Canon with 
primarily that the the, the absence of a self, not that uh, the, the the khandas are examined as not being worthy of something that has permanence. And the self, the theory of the self that was floating around at the time was that the self, this self had to be, it had to take up space and it had to persist in time in order not to be mortal, right? So the Buddha is actually saying there's nothing that you can find. So certainly in the five khandas, there's nothing that corresponds to that. All of the five khandas are uh, changing all the time. So there this could not be this the self and at the end he, he makes a startling statement that you cannot find the self you cannot find this this permanent entity <clears throat> the as this philosophical point is you know people thinking about it, especially logical thinkers and the greeks did this as well with atoms they they kept going down until you couldn't find something that that stuff must be made of something and they came up with this atom the this continued with the in the Abhidhamma, so it came up with basically everything that is compounded ha, is made of parts. So therefore, the bottom of this is something called dhammas. There's no no substance to them; they're just dhammas. So this is this becomes like a, a way of uh, influenced by Greek type analytical thinking. We can't. We we don't necessarily have names of the people who came up with this, but um, some of the the Greek thinkers are, are Abhidhamma scholars. So this this influences the divisions in the schools, and uh, some of the schools, of course, die out. They they are left behind. Writing happens, and the what are called the points of controversy, which are recorded in the Abhidhamma as well. Are recorded about these these differences in the schools, you know, um, and um, I think there's uh, evidence that this the whole idea of debate structures can be also borrowed from the Greeks, the the Greek uh, debate uh, tradition, and they have a more relaxed tradition. They uh, you have a convivial discussion, you know, these Socratic dialogues and Plato's dialogues and so forth. You're interested in finding the truth. It's not, it's not, it's not combat. It's not insults. It's, uh, it's an examination of these things. And that's, that's influencing some of these debates that end up in the Abhidhamma as well. So this is, this is all kind of interesting. By the way, this, uh, this period that we're living in, and this maybe will go ahead into the this modern time that we're living in, is is a golden age of Buddhist rediscoveries. This this stuff is all the books that you read on this stuff are written within, within the last twenty years, and they're just discovering. They're still. Uh, pulling out manuscripts and birch bark and and they're able to, with new technology to to open these things or see into these things without damaging them and you have this dna structures that are telling you the where connected with cosmology ideas uh where ideas are coming from and so this is this is a golden age that we're in which is and we're right on the the cutting edge of this 
Uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, we've never been able to access these things like, like we are now. Yeah, very curious about this, just in shifting from this historical perspective and how we interpret text. You mentioned, um, yeah, that some scholars and many scholars actually have a certain agenda and sometimes it's blatant and sometimes it's it's not so obvious. But I'm curious, I mean, in the world of like textual analysis, the word having an agenda, I mean, that's the, that's what you don't do. That's the taboo. You don't do that. But I'm curious, just from like a Dhammic perspective, both in terms of reading uh, Buddhist texts, whether it's Theravada or Mahayana, uh, or in reading, you know, modern, um, yeah, modern scientific studies or anything else, would you recommend, is there any agenda that might actually be a helpful agenda for a, a Dhamma practitioner in studying the Dhamma or study outside of the Dhamma? Yeah, I think that you might damage your the value of Buddhism if you start with a university course. <laughs> you know, it's it's really it's a therapy. It's not. It's kind of like I don't know studying Freud. You know, just as a as a artifact of history or something. Uh, it this is intended to reduce human suffering and it's a shame to turn it into an intellectual tennis game, you know, <laughs> and you can, and the schools, these schools do that as well. They, they are willing to, you can just see the agendas in some of these, uh, some of the longer sutras. The reason why they don't have so much in the way of agendas in the Pali Canon is that these schools had not developed yet. So you don't see some of these, but you do see uh, Brahmin debate, debates with the Brahmins and they have an agenda. They're, they're determined to go there and show the Buddha that they, that they'll defeat him and he can't stand up to them in, in argument and so forth. Um, by the way, this is, uh, this is something that the Buddhists turn out to be very, very good at debates. And you see that the Buddha changing people's minds People come over from Brahmanism to Buddhism. You will you will not find a single convert of Buddhism to Brahmanism. Why is that? Any guesses, gentlemen, why that would be? I mean, you certainly find a lot of convert, well, some level of converts from Buddhism to Advaita, but I mean that's certainly a, a different thing from Brahmanism. Not to, but to Brahmanism. Advaita is actually is actually the it's the side effect of buddhism is really what it is it's advaita doesn't exist before buddhism the, are you referencing the, the fact that development of what uh, are you referencing the fact that the monks were the ones articulating these suttas and so of course there's only conversions one way because or? brahmins you got to be born a brahmin <laughs> brahmanism isn't something you picked up along the way. <laughs> they, they don't want you being a Brahmin. You don't want to, they don't want converts. Brahmanism is, is something like Judaism. It's not, they're not looking for converts. And so they're, they're called more or less primary religions. And it's, it's more like secondary religions like Buddhism that allow conversion from anybody. Yeah. So these arguments, the Brahmins aren't, arguing usually on the basis of uh, logic or anything like that because 
their structure is not based in logic. They're based in, in, uh, in spells and, uh, being a part of a, of a lineage of a family and so forth. So you remember this Kalama Sutta where the Buddha is asked by the Kalamas, how do we choose our, our things? And one of the things is not by authority and not by, by history. So not by lineage and not by authority. So this is the Brahmanical um, approach to things. They don't really have good tools for arguments. And so that's why you see uh, Brahmins uh, converting to Buddhism, but there's no real, it's a one-way thing. You can't really, they don't want you. <laughs> you're, not, you're not born into the Brahmin family as a ritualist and so forth. So <clears throat> you, don't, you see that the Buddhism, like it, this is the, the two things that the, both the Greeks and the Buddhists have is an interesting way of discussing things, arguing, having, having a, a structure of examining and arguing about things in a rational way, bringing up various points this way and that way. And uh, that is particularly strong in the Greeks as well. And the Buddhists, I think, in, in Gandhara actually pick up uh, from that style, this, this argument style, this presentation. The Buddha, of course, is very good in saying, you know, this is, you can't go with the idea of doing something tricky to win the argument. And you can't lie even to win the argument. If you go there to uh, defend your position, but you can't use any dirty tactics. So it's the absence of, you don't use rhetoric. This is what the Socrates is doing as well. So uh, and Plato, they they despise rhetoric. Um, now, the, uh, for, for the audiences listening to us, I imagine many of you are Americans, and what's flinging, being fl flung around on television with these politicians is rhetoric. It's a lot of emotionalism, and uh, it's not it's not rational argument. It's uh, all kinds of uh, emotion, emotive kind of, uh, talk it. And by the way, it tends to, according to the great, uh, philosophers like Plato and so forth, unfortunately that is, that tends to win. <laughs> they win the elections <laughs> with rhetoric, but, and it's very unfortunate that they do. They don't win it with rational argument, but this is the Buddha is saying, you know, it's not just don't win it just by emotion. You, you have, you know, don't go to, don't stoop to that level, you know, Thank you, Lumpur Cup. Um, got a different question. Um, this is, so how do Thai forest Ajans explain the Chitta's nature and its persistence after death? And how is this reconciled with the Pali Canon teachings? What are the practical and philosophical implications for us of this? Well, <clears throat> I use this word, the Chit and so forth in a kind of a unorthodox way. It, it becomes a, a thing. It's a handy, I think it's probably a handy way of talking. And I think perhaps for just the sake of communication. So uh, when the chitta is just the mind in, in the Pali, it's just mind and there's chitasikas, you know, 
thought, uh, thought the flows of thought, streams of thought, and so forth. They, they have very formal, precise definitions of all of these aspects of the mind. But I think, you know, in the in the northeast, the Isan, the forest tradition, and so forth, they they use this. They talk about the chit and. It's kind of like a thing that goes out of you and <laughs> it's it's almost like a soul or something like that. So I think it's just a way of talking. It shouldn't be taken too literally. Um, it's just an easy way to talk about things without getting too technical. Like you don't find uh, Abhidhamma teachings in the forest tradition, you know, uh, more or less it's it's bypass actually it's quite wise that that they do tend to uh set aside abhidhamma i know ajahn Chah's the famous little talk he gave in uh, i think it was in, in london there was a woman who was an abhidhamma scholar i think she was dutch and she had come to a, hear a talk with ajahn Chah in in london and she asked him an abhidhamma question and he said uh you know, you're kind of like a person who who has a goose, and the goose lays eggs, and and it craps a lot as well. So you're you're following this goose around and picking up the crap instead of the eggs, and that was this kind of uh, dismissal of her Abhidhamma uh, question. So they're not <laughs> too hot on the microscopic precision and so forth, but these are just uh, ways of expression i wouldn't take it too seriously if you want to understand the the departure what, what departs from the body what persists in is in rebirth what is what is it that, that is reborn etc it requires a very careful answer because of course uh, we have this famous uh dialogue with i think the monk sati who said oh consciousness departs from the body and goes to the next body and the buddha called him in and said monk what did you say I don't teach that, <laughs> but it shouldn't be thought of as that that uh, we are annihilated at death and nothing goes on or anything like that. That's not the teaching, but it's very hard to express in ordinary language for ordinary the ordinary way we think the 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 flow. Uh, um, a flowing dynamic world where everything is flowing rather than things moving so all that we are all the khandas are flowing um, the rivers and they're not things but when we talk in ordinary casual language we we talk about things we talk about nouns but everything's a verb <laughs> so when we talk about what goes on there are very precise descriptions in the Abhidhamma about how this happens. The last moment of this life is the conditioning factor for the first moment of the next life. There isn't a, and there's no, in, nothing between them. There's no antara bhava. There's no existence between these two thought moments. So we're left with that, but that might be very hard to grasp on a, on a casual basis in a Dhamma talk. They're talking about the, the, the chit goes on, etc. So we'll wanna, we don't want to take it too literally or that it's too precise in, in language. Thank you, Longpore.
we uh, we will have to jump onto Zoom soon, but I uh, just wanted to read a few more comments and questions while we have a few minutes. Uh, Robin says, I so appreciate this talk. The explanations are clearing up some confusions and questions I've carried. Sam says, peace to you, oh great internet monks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, this is this is amazing, isn't it? This is the it's the golden age of internet monks. <laughs> and uh, that might be a good YouTube title. Um, we have another question where uh, the Gandharan period and its Greek influence intrigued me for many reasons. Among these is the portrayal of the Buddha. Wasn't this the first portrayal of the Buddha from this period? Yes, yes. Um, all the Buddha images before. Uh, before about the first century BC, second century BC, the it was um, simply icons. There were what was allowed during the time of the Buddha was the wheel. The Dhammachaka was allowed to be put on the gate of a monastery uh, specifically. Nothing else was. Uh, his footprint and an empty chair were the expressions after his death the empty throne, the empty Dhamma throne, and his footprints, and the wheel. And uh, so these are just symbols, but no representation, uh, physical representation. But you see the statuary from the Greeks is very, very common. Uh, Persians also had statuary, but they weren't as refined as, as the Greeks. So this is, and the Gandhara region is where the Greeks were, and so it wasn't very long before they decided to to portray the Buddha as um, in, in marble and in, in stone, <clears throat> and all kinds of uh, symbols. And you see some, some fantastic things. You see a carving of the Buddha sitting there with Hercules standing beside him, guarding him with a club. They've got the Greeks have got Hercules working into into the Buddhist uh, structure. They have uh, some of the Greek gods are involved. In fact, so this is one of the things. Like, the, is it the <clears throat> did the Greeks develop the idea of the Bodhisattvas, and did they develop the Bodhisattvas out of these heroes, these Greek heroes? Uh, it, and that become part of the Mahayana, and then you get these cosmic Buddhas. That's there's a number of thinkers who think that's the cause that the Greeks that were transferring this idea that they had their the heroes and the, the, the their their gods and so forth transformed into these bodhisattvas, um, and proliferate in the in the Mahayana tradition. So yeah, the, the, all the statuary and the art and so forth and the writing um, have Greek influences, it appears, yes. Thank you, Longpore. I think we have time for one more and we want to, I think this is a perfect ending question actually. Almost all the teaching seems quite logical, but what is the limit of this way of thinking when considering Nibbana or awakening? Well, that's my uh, my particular attitude to this is that uh, one should <clears throat> one should present 
all all the descriptions of Nibbana, well, first of all, there's two types of Nibbana. There's the Nibbana attained uh, by the Arahant uh, while alive. And then there's Pari Nibbana, the, what happens after, after death, you know. Um, these should not be, we should not try too hard um to get this you'll, you'll see this endless uh argument some it's a, it's a buddhist tradition you know some say well it's obviously there's five khandas they they perish and then there's nothing uh or well that can't be because nibbana is the deathless and it is uh it's neither beginning nor ending etc and uh there's some similes for what happens to consciousness etc but when you look at the words, you shouldn't look, try to look at them mystically. You should look at them logically. Uh, these, these, this language is for pe people who are not enlightened. I guess arhants don't need to have it explained to them, but everybody else does. And what happens is that when you pre present any of these things, that there's no self, the khandas dissolve, and then uh is consciousness included in the condis etc when you present this to somebody just logically uh, you know a, a fourth year logic student analytical logic student at oxford they say well uh that doesn't there is you're you're not expressing anything language fails here so when we try to push it this is the problem and the buddha says this again and again it's it's really it's beyond language, you know, it's too subtle. It's very subtle. Don't, don't bother. It, it really is inexpressible. However, get back to your practice and just continue that way. And then don't worry your pretty little head about the fact that it's just impossible to think it out. Um, he says this about the beginning of the universe. He says it about space and time. He says it about the body and the mind. I would even say it applies to such things as free will or predestination. There's things that you really don't have time to chew on too much. Uh, that it doesn't allow itself to be uh, quite expressed in logic. And so feel free to just not worry about it and come back to the, to the practice and, and get the benefits of this. Yeah. Lumpur, that was a great answer, and we will try not to worry our pretty little heads about these things. <laughs> so our shiny little heads. <laughs> <laughs> we just shake them. Um, yeah. Lumpur, um, we want to move on to Zoom now, and uh, for those who are interested in joining for a more intimate conversation, I'm posting the link into the chat. You can, as with every Wednesday, join um, for a continued discussion on Zoom. Um, but just to say, uh, Longpore, your mentorship, your guidance, um, your care have just been such a boon to this whole project. And we're so appreciative of you joining us. And please come visit us in Seattle. It's, it's warmer here. So. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to uh, have conversations with you, uh, Venerables. And I will see you on the other side. Uh, who knows how this works? It's beyond logic, but apparently we're going to appear on Zoom next. Okay, see you then. <laughs>